Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hi, I'm John Donvan, host and moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. When I was a kid, the futurists had us imagining that one day we'd all be getting around in jetpacks and one-person helicopters and, for some reason, also wearing silver suits. It didn't happen, did it? But when my kids were kids, the talk was how someday we'd all be getting around in driverless cars. And now it seems that may actually be about to happen in some form or other as the kinks get worked out, heralding in an era, if the dream proves true, of safer and cheaper and more convenient transport. But that dream, does it have a dark side? Could the driverless car hit the environment hard, put masses of people out of work, fail to be as safe as promised? Well, we decided this all has the makings of a debate, so that's what we're going to do. With two teams of two, experts who have spent years thinking about these questions, ready now to argue for and against the resolution we put before them, which is... All hail the driverless car. We're going in front of a live audience at the Adam Smith Society's 2019 National Meeting in New York. We go in three rounds. All hail the driverless car. Let's get started and meet these debaters. Please welcome Amitai Vinod. Amitai, you are currently the Vice President of Autonomous Vehicles at SAFE. That's a nonprofit in D.C., working with state and local and federal governments to better understand, to positively engage uh, driverless cars and advanced transportation technology. Amitai, welcome to Intelligence Squared. It's great to be here. Thank you for it's having me. It's great to have you. And your partner, please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome, Chris Ermson. Chris, you are a no-name, truly a player in this field, and by that I mean in the self-driving vehicle industry. After 15 years at work in this, you helped to develop Google's self-driving car program. You are now uh, the CEO and co-founder of Aurora. Great to have you here, Chris. Thanks for having me. It's an, an honor to be here. It's a pleasure to have you as well. Ladies and gentlemen, the team arguing for the resolution, all hail the driverless car. And of course, we have two debaters arguing against this resolution. First, please welcome Meredith Broussard. <laughs> Meredith, uh, you work where artificial intelligence crosses lines with journalism. Uh, you were once developing software for AT&T, Bell Labs, and MIT. You now teach data journalism at New York University. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you. It's great to have you as well. <laughs> and Meredith's partner, ladies and gentlemen, Ashley Nunes. Ashley, you're a senior researcher at Harvard and at MIT. You're an expert in transportation safety, in regulatory policy, in behavioral economics. You write extensively. You lecture globally on the changes facing the transportation industry. We're so glad to have you here, Ashley. Thank you for having me. And so to the debate, we go in three rounds. Our first round will be opening statements by each debater in turn. Speaking first for the resolution, all hail the driverless car, here is Amitai Binun, regulation expert and vice president of autonomous vehicles at SAFE. Amitai Binun. To advance and create a better future, we must pursue deeper understanding of nature and embrace the potential of technology. We are lucky to be alive today, my life and your life, are far better off than if we were born 100 years ago or 200 years ago. Life expectancy today in the U.S. at birth is approaching 80 years. 100 years ago, that was in its 40s. 200 years ago, you could expect to live to your 30s when you were born. Globally, 200 years ago, almost half of all children born died before the age of five. Today, that's under 4%, and in the U.S., that's under 1%. 200 years ago, 95% of all people in the world lived in what we would consider dire poverty, the equivalent of what is today $2 a day. 
Today, that's 10% and dropping. But even the poorest people today have a higher standard of living than the wealthiest members of generations past. Our improved health and our economic prosperity is being driven by scientific discovery and technological development. Rejecting scientific advancement brings stagnation and ultimately irrelevance as a society. And it is the people who compose our societies who make the choices to deploy those technologies and apply it to our problems to build that better tomorrow. And so long as scientific discovery continues, that is a task that does not end. Self-driving cars are so exciting because they offer us a fresh opportunity to address some intractable problems that transportation policy and technologists have tried for decades to address, to improve roadway safety, to improve the accessibility of our transportation system, to reduce fossil fuel use, to improve congestion and reduce inequality in access to transportation. We have these problems because we cannot live without the freedom of movement. Studies show that people who cannot move, who do not have freedom of movement, have greater rates of depression and have worse health outcomes. Our lives are enriched by the fact that we can travel and we can be more exposed to other cultures. That's why, since the invention of the automobile, Americans travel 50 times further each year than they did before, and we get all sorts of opportunities because of that. We pay the cost. We pay with our money. We pay with our time. We pay with our very lives. Our transportation system isn't accessible. There are two million people with a disability who never leave their home because they cannot drive. There are 15 million people who have difficulty accessing transportation because of their inability to drive. I want to share with you the story of my friend Lindsay, who I've worked with in Washington, D.C. Lindsay is legally blind and she cannot drive. She moved from car-dependent Texas to Washington, D.C. because the other transportation opportunities in D.C. let her work and let her have a full social life. She became inspired by the potential of self-driving cars to improve mobility for people like her. And she has launched a policy initiative within the Department of Labor to use self-driving cars to help people with disabilities get to work. But we cannot move forward without the help of you and other members of the public. So when I say, all hail the self-driving car, I don't mean hail like you hail a leader. I mean you should actively step forward just like you might hail a taxi and use your efforts and your strength to help summon this future into being. So I ask that we all collectively hail the self-driving car. Thank you, Amitabh Ben-Noon. And that, of course, is the resolution, All Hail the Driverless Car, and here to make her opening statement against this resolution, journalist and author Meredith Broussard. I want to start by talking about the first time that I rode in a self-driving car, which was back in 2007. I was writing a story about the Grand Challenge, the DARPA Grand Challenge, and I heard about these kids who were building a self-driving car to drive it through the desert, and I thought, oh, that sounds like a fantastic story, and so I went to ride in it. I got into the car, and I thought I was going to vomit, I thought I was going to die, (laughs) and then I thought I was going to do both at the same time. So it was in an empty parking lot at a Boeing plant in South Philadelphia, and the car had to steer on a big curve through the parking lot, and it headed straight at a giant cement pylon, and it failed to detect this giant cement pylon, and we almost ran into it, inches away from running into it. And it did not inspire confidence in me. And so in 2007, I thought, oh, well, you know, this sounds nifty, but... These engineers are saying, oh, it's not going to be available, this technology, for five years. And I thought, eh, I don't know if it's ever going to be. And I kind of forgot about it. So fast forward in 2016, when I started hearing again that self-driving cars are five years in the future. And I wondered, did they actually fix all of the problems that I observed in 2007? And the answer is no. And in fact, advocates for self-driving cars have been saying that they're coming soon since at least 1991. With all of these delays and with all of these futures that have failed to materialize, I think it's time to ask, will self-driving cars ever work? I started my career as a computer scientist, and then I quit to become a journalist. And I have a new book out called Artificial Unintelligence, How Computers Misunderstand the World. 
It's about the inner workings and the outer limits of technology. So I've spent the past couple of years thinking about why there's a really big gap between what people imagine technology can do and what technology can actually do. And so the self-driving car is a really good place to examine the gap between imagination and reality. There are a lot of misconceptions around artificial intelligence. A really easy definition that I like to use is that artificial intelligence is a subfield of computer science, the same way that algebra is a subfield of mathematics. And inside artificial intelligence, we have other subfields like machine learning, buzzwords like neural networks. There's a little linguistic confusion around these terms because when you say artificial intelligence, you say machine learning, it sounds like there's a little brain in the computer, right? And it kind of triggers all of our Hollywood imagination. So this confusion extends to self-driving cars. When we think about the artificial intelligence inside self-driving cars, people kind of assume that the car is thinking. It's not thinking. It's subroutines. It's computing, which is a really important distinction. The AI inside autonomous vehicles is very, very impressive, It is an amazing feat of engineering. It is not safe, but it is extremely impressive. So let's look at one of the ways that the artificial intelligence fails. The thing that the car needs to do when it comes up to, say, a stop sign is it needs to take in sensor information from the world, identify that there's a stop sign, and then trigger a subroutine to slowly come to a halt at the line in front of the stop sign. And the problem is that the image recognition algorithms inside the car are very brittle. They're very easy to defeat. So if I were to do something simple, like take a sparkly unicorn sticker and put it onto the stop sign, then the car would fail to recognize the stop sign as a stop sign and would go through the intersection and cause an accident. Another thing that engineers are not talking enough about is the environment inside a self-driving car. Think about the way that harassment works inside rideshare vehicles now. We know that women are routinely harassed inside rideshare vehicles by other passengers. And one of the reasons that I personally appreciate public transportation is that there is a train conductor, there is a bus driver, there's somebody with moral authority that is recognized inside that space. So if we take away the bus driver, we take away the moral authority, we take away a degree of safety. And I don't know that that's something that we want to do as a society. I'm also going to ask a provocative question. I talked to a lot of taxi drivers, and what they said across the board was that people are kind of gross in taxis. Who will clean them? Lots of people get car sick. Think about that. (laughs) author and data journalist Meredith Broussard. Can driverless car technology drastically improve our lives? Or will they cause disasters and leave a big mess? More opening statements in just a moment from Intelligence Squared U.S. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. So a reminder of where we are. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this resolution, all hail the driverless car. You've heard the first two opening statements, and now on to the third. To debate in support of the resolution, Aurora co-founder and CEO, Chris Urmson. For the last 15 years, this has been my life. I was there in the desert the first year, challenged to drive 150 miles, and that year we drove seven, and then basically burst into flames. Um, And so, you know, no, we weren't quite ready yet, but a year and a half later, we came back, and we had six vehicles finish the challenge that year. 
And so we got on our soapbox and we said, this technology is coming, it's getting better faster. We then had the third grand challenge, and this time the idea was to drive around an abandoned airbase. Uh, and some brave souls, stunt drivers actually, got in vehicles and interacted with the cars on the road that day. And they were moving around and creating traffic. And after 60 miles, five vehicles finished. Now, it wasn't without excitement. One big truck drove into a building. Two other cars bumped into each other. But this was more than a decade ago. And this technology is advancing rapidly since then. For me, I've seen the first time that a blind man rode in a self-driving car by himself through a city. I've also seen the first time the police pulled over a self-driving car. And, you know, and, and the need for us to explain what's happening with the technology of the community, and that's why I'm here today. And let's talk about safety first. Worldwide, 1.3 million people die on our roads. About 40,000 people die on America's roads every year. That's the equivalent of four 737 MAX 8s falling out of the sky every week. Where's the outrage? The status quo is incredibly broken, and we have the opportunity to do something about this. The good news is that 96% of these accidents are due to human error, people making mistakes behind the wheel. And the reason why we have these accidents is due to a combination of people drinking, being distracted, and being tired. We need to find a way to bring another solution to bear. And in this case, the solution is tantalizingly close, and that is self-driving driverless vehicles. But let's ask the question, why do people do these things in the car? Fundamentally, people are really bad at estimating risk and their ability. Uh, you know, it turns out that more than 80% of Americans believe they are above-average drivers. So think about that for a moment. And then the second is that time is precious. And so when we have the opportunity to pull a cell phone from our pocket and indulge in something fun in the midst of the tedium of driving, we do so, and at great risk to ourselves and the public. There's a very human cost to this, and there's a huge economic cost as well. It turns out the average American commutes about 55 minutes a day. There's about 128 million people who do that. If you multiply that by the average hourly wage in the U.S., which I looked up today, is about $28, that means we are spending $3 billion a day to have the privilege of commuting. Anyone who says they like driving doesn't enjoy commuting, and we can fix that for them. Imagine those people coming home at the end of the day instead of cursing about the experience they just had, having had the chance to use that time productively or had that chance to read a book or relax or engage in a debate. Really, the argument shouldn't be, do we hail the driverless car? It's, do we really accept the cost and the loss of life accepted with the status quo? And if we don't, then this is the technology to deliver that. Thank you, Chris Armson. And again, the resolution is, all hail the driverless car. And here to make his statement against the resolution is Ashley Nunes, senior researcher at Harvard Law and MIT. Ashley Nunes, ladies and gentlemen. Let's say we could get the technology to be perfect. Who stands to benefit the most from driverless technology? Who is dying on America's roads? If we look at road fatalities over the last 20 or 30 years, there has in fact been a drop in terms of the volume of people that are dying on the roads. But it turns out that that drop has not been uniformly shared across the socioeconomic spectrum. Sam Harper, a wonderful epidemiologist at McGill, has done some work on this. And what he has found is truly worrying. If you are an American with a college degree or higher, the chances of you dying on the road has gone down over the last three decades. But if you have less than a college degree, the chances of you dying on America's roads has actually gone up. And one reason why is because less educated people generally tend to make less money. And as a consequence of that, they are more likely to own older vehicles that lack advanced safety features, things like rear-facing cameras, blind spot detectors, automated braking. Put simply, if there's one group of Americans that stands to benefit from driverless car technology, it's poor people, which raises a very interesting question. Can poor people actually afford it? And we've crunched the numbers, and what we have found is that they cannot. In fact, on a per-mile basis, riding in a driverless taxi would be at least three times higher than owning an older vehicle today. Three times higher. 
This raises a very interesting question. While driverless car technology may in fact have the potential to improve public health, to save lives, whose lives are we actually saving? Thank you, Ashley Nunes. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our resolution is all hail the driverless car. Now we move on to round two. And round two is where the debaters address one another directly and also take questions from me and from you, our live audience here at the Adam Smith Society in New York City. The team arguing for the resolution, Amitai Benun and Chris Urmson, uh, they presented a very optimism-infused argument, driverless cars as an incredible innovation Uh, which will solve a variety of problems, including safety and accessibility and climate change, uh, even income inequality. They put a special emphasis on how it will solve uh, challenges faced by the disability community by giving them a chance to get out. Freedom of movement, basically, that we are now, quote, tantalizingly close to the realization of this vision. The team arguing against the resolution says, no, we're not tantalizingly close. They're arguing that the promise of artificial intelligence has been rather hyped that the basic problem with the driverless car is that they are computers and computing is not thinking and driving needs thinking. The promise is hollow, they say. The algorithms are easy to defeat. And finally, they talk about the environment inside the cars and talk about the absence of a moral agent such as a driver or a bus driver. Kind of home run point, the surprising point, that if somebody gets car sick in a driverless car, who's going to clean the thing up? Okay, so that sums up the arguments that we heard from both sides. And I want to dig into some of that, starting, I think, with the basic feasibility question. On the one hand, Meredith, you were saying that it's just never going to happen. Chris, you said it's tantalizingly close. So defend tantalizingly. Defend tantalizingly. It's a good word. Um, yeah. I, I think it was on the SATs. Um, <laughs> How close so, are we? So I, I think you will see within the next five years uh, small-scale deployments of this technology. My former team at Google has deployed vehicles where they were driving around with no operator in them. They're not yet ready for full-scale deployments, and they're doing the right thing and being very safe and thoughtful in that deployment. But we can see this technology on the road. Our team engages with it every day. And I think probably one of the strong points is just the amount of economic investment in the space. Some very smart people are investing significant dollars behind this technology to push it forward. So Meredith, you're making the exact counter argument. You're saying it'll never get there. So what's your response to Chris's point just now? I actually used to believe that the self-driving cars were close. Then I went in and I read the code and I read the training data. I looked at the training data and I realized that a lot of the kind of everyday issues that we cope with as drivers are not represented in the training data and are not accounted for in the code. I think about weird things that happen when you're driving. So my personal weirdest thing that ever happened while I was driving was I was going down a twisty road in Vermont, and all of a sudden there was a moose just standing in the middle of the road, just looking at me. And I thought, wow, It never before occurred to me that I was going to have to reckon with a moose when I was driving. And so I could very quickly update my mental model that, oh, yes, there are, uh, there are going to be moose in Vermont, and there are going to be large mammals that I'm going to have to navigate around as a driver. Plural meese, that would be. The plural, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So let me take your point to, Chris, so your opponent is saying there are just going to be things that the software will never be able to work with. This is the, the thing that I actually yeah. do know a little bit about. Both being Canadian, we're familiar with, with meese, uh, and, and working in this space. Um, this long tail argument or rare events, there's two ways that I think about that as maybe not as big a deal as others do. One is when you have teams of people that have been working on this for a decade, right, we've thought pretty hard about this stuff. The idea that an animal might be in the road is not totally a surprising concept, particularly if you look at safety statistics. The other thing that I would think about is that really a lot of those rare events, what it boils down to is not hitting the thing. Right? You know, it might look like a moose, it might look like a tree, it might look like a sparkly unicorn. The goal is don't hit the stuff in the road. A lot of that really boils down to something relatively straightforward. Never is such a, a hard bar to prove, but you really are staking out that ground. I, I really am. I really am. And the optimism Because that you hear from Chris does not 
Uh, I mean, one of the things that I that I really like that Chris has said in the past uh, is, uh, Chris, you have a YouTube video where you talk about weird stuff that has been observed by the Google cars. And so there's a there's a clip where you're talking about a woman in a wheelchair chasing a duck around the street. And I thought, wow, that is a really great example of something that I never would have imagined that I needed to write code against if I were programming this car. But the category of things that happen in the world that you can't write code against is actually is really vast. And so you have cases like in Australia when the cars malfunction when faced with kangaroos. Okay, because like, yes, we can, we can absolutely program against moose, like we can program against North American land mammals, and we can program against North American birds, but then we get to Australia, and we're into the kangaroos, and they're totally different. And so humans are really flexible. We can update our mental models very quickly and easily, and these kinds of things are not easy to update in code. They're actually very expensive. All right, so let me bring another yeah. tie. Sure. So I, I think the difficulty in sometimes in seeing the future, even if, as we're at the cusp of it, and I, this recalls to mind the journalist named Clifford Stoll, who is a very respected columnist, but his career will forever be remembered by one unfortunate article that he wrote in 1995 where he said the internet's going to fizzle out and be completely meaningless. I think it had such beautiful lines in it like, well, if e-commerce is going to be anything, how come my, my mall does more business in an afternoon than the entire internet does in a month? Who wants to read a newspaper on a computer? Now, in his defense, it's always hard to see these things in foresight. Hindsight's 2020. I really think that in 10 years from now, when we look back on this, or in 10, 15 years, when this is mainstream, we're going to look back and think that it was obvious going forward. And it's being driven by very fundamental advances in tech. The same amount of computation that costs a couple pennies today costs $1,000 in 2000 and a $1 billion in 1970. And so that's why when we talk about image recognition, even since the Google self-driving car project has started, on the annual competition where teams test their cutting-edge vision algorithms, their error rates have improved by a factor of 10 just over that time. So, Amitai, are you, are you suggesting that all problems ultimately, almost all problems ultimately are solvable through technology? Technologies are tools. And they give us tools to solve problems that weren't solved before. Okay, so I, I, want now, to, I want to take that note to Ashley Nunes, who's made the argument that there's a socioeconomic problem, that if indeed your team's argument that driverless cars have the ability to reduce income inequality by making these vehicles available to people who can't afford cars, Ashley's saying, no, that's actually not true economically, that people would be better off keeping and owning awful old cars because it probably costs too much to hail one of these things and get in it if you're income limited. So, Ashley, respond to... What Amitai is saying is this is a problem that can be solved because most of these problems can be solved. Right? As a fellow Canadian, I certainly appreciate the importance of dealing with Mies. Um, <laughs> that said, uh, I just want to go to Chris's point earlier where you talked about um, tremendous investment in the space. So I think there was a Brookings report in which they were talking about something in the order of about $80 billion. This is a bit, a bit of a pithy comeback, but what I would say is just because people are willing to invest in an enterprise doesn't mean the enterprise makes Sense, and I think Theranos is a very, very good example of this. Um, just self. Do you want to remind people what Theranos is? Uh, essentially, a, a biopharmaceutical company out in California that, was for lack of a better word, was a scam. A scam. Yeah. Uh, so you your might, point is that the people who invested in it. Their investments did not prove that it was a good idea. So Precisely. Okay. We, we could digress here, but I think sure. if you look at the oversight of that company versus some of the oversight of investments there, so yep. it's that a little a fair different. Point. Yeah. Yep, fair enough. Yeah. Now, um, on the point regarding we can get the costs down, um, I cannot dispute Amitai's point. If we think about uh, the first cell phone, for example, it looked a little bit like a brick, and I think at that time a cell phone sold for about uh, $4,000, and today's dollars it would be about 9000 And I doubt very much most of you have paid $9,000 for your cell phone. Well, some of you might have, I don't know. Um, it is true that as technology gets better and as production volume increases, we can get the price down. But that's not really the comparison. The question isn't, can we get the price to be lower? The question is, can we get the price to drop so that it is competitive with what poor people and indeed regular people own today? And I to date at least, have not seen any data that suggests you can get this technology to be cost competitive with personal vehicle ownership. 
there is actually a ready-made audience that would enormously benefit from self-driving technologies, especially if it comes out as most people in the field believe in shared fleets like Uber or Lyft. Two income groups that use taxis the most. The richest group, as you might expect, who use it for convenience, and the poorest groups, because they can't afford to own a car and therefore have to pay for taxis, even though taxis are more expensive. So those groups will benefit immediately with self-driving cars in a fleet model. And that's already been borne out in what we've seen in Uber and Lyft. Taxis are not available in most zip codes in Los Angeles, and there was a study by University of California Davis that showed that 99.8% of Los Angeles can now get into an Uber or Lyft, and they're including lower-income populations and black neighborhoods where taxis didn't want to go. So that opens possibilities okay. that they didn't have before. Let's let Meredith in. So here's something that I've been wondering about. This is not a debate point, but this is a question. What happens when you have these cars out on the road with thousands of dollars of equipment and people want to steal the equipment off of them. Because I I think a lot about the ways that you would defeat a self-driving car. You can do a lot of damage with a post-it note, okay? Because the self-driving car, it's designed to not hit things. So you can stand in front of it and it's not going to go anywhere. The Tesla, for example, has these like really fun falcon wings. But if you're parked too close to a road sign, the falcon wings won't go up because the sensor is impeded. So I thought, well, what if you went up to it with a post-it note, all right, put the post-it note over the sensor, then the car can't move, and then you can, like, rip off all of the expensive Who would do that? You mean a vandal? Yeah. Okay, so your perceptions of humanity are... (laughs) No, no, no. No, there is vandalism. I'm I'm a journalist. I'm I'm a journalist, too, and I'm thinking, okay, I know know where you're coming from on this. So let's bring it back to the real optimist on the stage, uh, Amitai. Um, you know, think, I'm things like, my sunny things like, like, like what, what Meredith is talking about. Things like hacking in. To, I mean, people are hacking into automobiles, electronics already. So these are all sound like serious challenges to the kind of positive vision that you're laying out there. And again, you might say everything's solvable in the end, but can you be more specific about that? We think about somebody putting a post-it note on the car, and you know, we, we'd certainly prefer it to not drive away rather than kind of faith-based drive off and, and hope it all works out. We think about security. We think about these failure modes. You know, if I look at the engine in my car, it's probably worth $1,000 or more. I think the transmission is. I think the tires in my car are probably worth a few hundred dollars. This is kind of a thing that exists uh, and doesn't feel like an argument against self-driving cars. It, it, it is more of a, a discussion around our, our perception of humanity. I, I found Meredith's point, one that I didn't expect to come up, the notion of there being a sort of moral, what was the term you used, a moral authority in public spaces such as buses and taxis. And what you're really sort of saying is you don't want to be alone in a box that doesn't have a human with that strange. you can appeal to. With strange, yeah. And I think yeah, a lot of women feel like this. A lot of us don't get into elevators late at night with strange men. We won't do a ride share especially going home late at night or after being out at the bars. And this is something that men often don't think about. Guys, have you thought about this? It's abhorrent, right? I think it's terrible. Women feel that level of risk. But we didn't say we're not going to have elevators because of that. The technology is still incredibly useful and valuable. And the right answer is not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Should we proceed with caution or embrace self-driving technology? All hail the driverless car. More debate on that in just a moment. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two debating this resolution. All hail the driverless car. Ashley, can you take on your opponent's argument about the advantages of a driverless car for the disabled? I really have a problem with this term driverless because it conjures up the image that there is no one overlooking the technology. And this is factually inaccurate. Through the history of mankind, there has never been a single instance where safety-critical features have been designated to machines without any human oversight. Driverless, as I often say, does not mean humanless. To your point about the impact on the disabled, the consequences on the one hand are good because you have someone watching over that vehicle in case a disabled person or any person for that matter has difficulty. But there is a negative externality as well, which is the minute you have an individual watching over a driverless car, that's a cost. How many driverless cars should one person watch? 
Because the only way the economics work is if you leverage economies of density. And I've put this question before to auto execs, and no one will give me an answer. Can I come to that question in a moment after you answer the question about the impact on the disabled community? Because it seems huge. Absolutely. It absolutely has the ability to increase mobility for a large swath of Americans, indeed individuals more broadly. But leveraging that benefit depends once again on cost. So well, given that the average paratransit ride is 70 or $90, we should be able to do that better than that pretty easily. Ashley was making the point that at some level, some individual needs to be sort of overseeing, in a sense, a kind of air traffic control system. Somebody's got to be there. And he asks the question, how many vehicles can a human keep track of and do that well and safely? I think conceptually, I agree with the point. I have a fairly high degree of optimism about the level of that oversight. Exactly what the number is, I could make up something, but it would be meaningless. But the point is that it will not be one operator to one vehicle. It'll be one to many. The technology is avoiding bumping into stuff, and then at the point where we really need human-level intellect to support and kind of unblock the technology, that's where the people engage, and that's at a relatively low rate. Okay, I'd like to go to audience questions. Wow, a lot of people are interested. (laughs) That's great. Right here in the front. Hi, I'm Eileen Cowdery, UVA Darden School of Business. We had a case about the ethics of driverless cars in one of our classes at school. Scenarios where you have to delegate an ethical decision or question to a driverless car. What are the pros of delegating those decisions to a a computer or or cons? And maybe who who are the winners and losers here? So I believe you're referring to the trolley problem, which is a classic ethical dilemma. Uh, Let's tell people very briefly, the trolley problem is a scenario. It's sort of classical philosophy. Posed since the 1970s, talked about a lot. Trolley gets loose and is going down a track. The track divides, and on one side, there's five people standing. On the other side, there's one guy standing. And somebody has his hand on the lever. He's got to make a decision. Does he push the lever that kills five people or kills one people? I pretty much nailed it. Okay. So I'm guessing in the issue of the driverless cars, is this thing going to be programmed? if you're driving down a street and you see a small child to run over the child or to smash into the tree that kills the driver. sort of thing in an extreme situation which may or may not be realistic. I'm going to smash into the tree in order to save the small child Mm -hmm. because young lives are precious. One of the things that we have to do with self-driving cars is program in decisions around these kinds of issues. People who are making these kinds of decisions are not necessarily the people who are best equipped to make these kinds of social decisions. Who do you think they are? The engineers who are building the code are not necessarily the best equipped. Ethics has not been emphasized for an entire generation of engineers and software developers. And in fact, we didn't start having a robust conversation about AI ethics and data ethics until the past couple of years. And I would also say that there's a kind of bias inside the tech community that I call techno-chauvinism. Technology is always a superior solution. In something like the ethical realm, the human solution is actually superior. It's not actually a competition. And we should think about using the right tool for the task. For driving, humans are actually a really good solution. Okay. Um, there is an ethical dilemma at the heart of self-driving cars, and that ethical dilemma is how much do you develop them in private settings before you deploy them to the public? Now, maybe at, at some point soon they are safer than the average human driver, but, but at that point do you deploy them or do you wait? Well, the RAND Corporation, they did a study. If you deployed as soon as they were safer than a human driver, used the fact that the cars would be on the road and gaining experience and would continue to save, over a 50-year period you would save a million lives relative to holding back the cars till you were sure that they were close to perfect. So I think that is the, the big moral dilemma that I'm thinking about, and I know what side I'm on. Spending time and energy on very artificial situations where you have a uh, choice to either swerve and hit something at the last minute, those very rarely come up, and very rarely will the algorithm make the difference. So I think we're going to be spending our energy thinking about the ethics. The ethics need to be around the speed of deployment and how we build support for so, the right level. So uh, Meredith is saying, Chris, that out in Silicon Valley, the culture that you're we're, part of, there's too little consideration yeah. given to ethical questions, and what's happening with driverless cars is a prime example of that. Yeah, I, I, so I think the premise of that, I think, is, is, is a little unfair, right? It's painting a whole community with a, one particular brush. Um, so I, I guess I'd just go out, actually, I talk directly about the heart of the trolley problem. So first, there is no right answer. 
right? This is not something like mathematics where they're, you know, one plus one equals two. This is something where the right answer is really a function of our society and our values and which life do we hold more precious or not. The government ultimately will have a voice and in the interim we have to do our best to deal with these incredibly rare events. The other part of the question, though, is a little flawed. You know, the answer is, well, of course, I would swerve into the tree to avoid the child in the road. The problem is that in the instant that you have to make that decision, we have done studies. Reasoning does not get to that level. It doesn't get to a moral question. Something happens. After that, you either have to live with it or you don't. Oh, my God, in that moment, I chose to run over a child. And that person's, that person's life is now, is now destroyed along with the child. So I would argue that by taking this and having a deliberative answer, something where we know what the code paths are going to do uh, and how they're going to respond, we can communicate that at a minimum and say, this is the choices we think the system will make. Do you accept this? Rather than hoping that the right thing happens in the instant. Ashley, do you want to weigh in on this as well? Sure, I'd love to all right. Uh, quick show of hands. How many people here have a driver's license? For the people who are only listening to this, it's, um, I'd say, 99% of the room. Sure. Uh-huh. Uh, and for those of you that have a driver's license, how many of you recall getting any form of training on whether or not to hit the tree or hit the child on the road? Right. Less than 1% of the hands has gone up. Sir, are you arguing we shouldn't worry about this? My point is this is a misnomer. It's a nice academic exercise to engage in, but no regulator would ever sign off on a system that prioritizes one life over another. It has never happened. It will probably never happen. I also don't want my kid out there in a world where there are two-ton killing machines roving around that are programmed to kill children and save the driver. I'm not okay with that. And I think that I, you know, I tend to agree. I would like zero killing machines. Um, I'm, I'm all for that. Um, <laughs> and, but what you forget is that we have them. They are on the road today. Right in the back there. Hi, Stafford Palmieri. I'm with the New York City professional chapter, Brent Wharton. There are some researchers at UC Davis that have done some research about the environmental impact of driverless cars, and their hypothesis is that driverless cars are going to decrease use of public transportation because now it will be easier for you to do work in a driverless car as opposed to taking the train or a bus. Do you believe that driverless cars will exacerbate environmental problems? And if not, what evidence do you have that that will not occur? That is such a perfectly phrased question. Thank you for that. Let's take it first, Amitai. Sure. Now, I'm very familiar with that UC Davis study, and there's one fact that I really want to point out. What they did was they gave people a chauffeur for a week and recorded how much their travel changed a free chauffeur for a whole week. But the greatest increase in travel came from older people who went out on social occasions in the evening. Older Americans who were homebound because they couldn't travel, particularly at night. Some of that increased travel is going to come from people with disabilities or older people getting to uh, social opportunities and reducing their isolation. So I think that is overall a really good thing. In terms of the environmental impact, we did a survey of every company that had a permit to test autonomous vehicles, self-driving cars in California. Around 60% were using electric vehicles as their platform. Another 20-something percent were using hybrids. Compare that Less than 1% of the vehicles on our road are electric, only about 2 to 3% are hybrid. So that tells me that the vehicle of the future, the self-driving car, is likely to be an electric. And that's going to do a lot to help improve the environmental outcomes. Okay, let's let the other side respond. Do either of you want to take on the environmental question? Uh, well, I'll take Amitai's point on sure, regarding uh, driverless cars providing access to disabled people. I wanted to come back on this. Companies aren't developing this technology to provide services to disabled people. They're developing this technology to make money. And they will price their product at a rate that allows them to recoup the cost of capital. That's number one. Number two, in regards to the environmental benefits of driverless cars, if you think about a powertrain today, if you think about a vehicle, it's about 55%. That number fluctuates a little bit. About 55% of a vehicle's fuel economy comes from the engine itself. About 45% comes from what we would call eco-friendly driving practices, things like not hitting the gas when you're you know, running up towards a red light, uh, things like that. As far as I'm concerned, unless you can guarantee that driverless cars will be electrified vehicles, which you can't, 
You absolutely cannot. Realizing the environmental benefits of this technology, all else being equal, is, in my view, perhaps not necessarily accurate. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our resolution is, all hail the driverless car. Making his closing statement in support of the resolution, all hail the driverless car, here is Amitai Benun, regulation expert and vice president of autonomous vehicles at SAFE. Some of our opponents have uh, suggested that autonomous vehicles either won't work well or they may be limited as luxuries or they're mainly convenience plays for the rich. Well, history abounds with arguments in advance of new technologies that don't fully foresee how they're used, so we don't fully see the impact before it happens. In the late 1940s, AT&T wanted to start deploying a cell phone network, and the government wouldn't allow it. It said cell phones are only going to be for the rich. It's only going to be for convenience. It's not really going to work. Instead, what we'd like to do is reserve the spectrum for several thousand new TV stations, because that's what people need. Well... There were never several thousand new TV stations, and cell phone networks were not permitted until the early 1980s, and we all know what happened from there. Self-driving cars will change our transportation system, and they will change people's lives for the better. History shows, though, that compelling technologies can be delayed if the public doesn't fully understand its potential, and that doesn't help draw the technology. So I am encouraged that Polls show that already 50% of people are very interested in getting into self-driving cars because we cannot afford to wait another 30 years or delay by 30 years the safety and accessibility benefits of self-driving technologies. Thank you, Amitai Ben-Nun. And now to speak against the resolution, all hail the driverless car, here is Ashley Nunes, senior researcher at Harvard Law and MIT. So uh, our opponents have spoken very eloquently about the ability of this technology to save lives. Governments agree, investing billions of dollars to give us what we want, the self-driving car. But I propose there is another way. We could, for example, use existing public policies to save lives. We could take a no-tolerance approach to drunk driving, something that has been shown to reduce road fatalities by as much as 18%. We could lower speed limits, something that, according to the WHO, has been found to lower road fatalities by as much as 30%, we could simply ask people to buckle up, something that has been shown to reduce road fatalities by as much as 50%. As stewards of the public purse, our commitment should be to what we need, not what we want. Thank you, Ashley Nunes. And that resolution again... All hail the driverless car, and here to make his closing statement in support of the resolution, Aurora co-founder and CEO, Chris Urmson. So I'm going to take a moment and talk uh, about someone, Stephen Fletcher. He's the brother of the guy who was the best man at my wedding, the best friend of mine in high school and college. Stephen, Canadian, geological engineer, was driving to a mine in northern Manitoba one morning and hit a moose. He became a quadriplegic. Since then, he has had an incredible career, cabinet minister in the Canadian government. But every day, he is burdened by that challenge of simply getting from one place to another. So for someone like Stephen, this is a technology that we just cannot live without, whether it would have saved him on that day or whether we give him the freedom today. My oldest son is in the audience today. He's 15 and a half. Basically, last time he rode his bicycle for real, he rode into a trash can and crashed and broke his wrist. He's about to get a driver's license in six months. Uh, and he is, <laughs> he is a smart, thoughtful, intelligent young man. But if you look at the statistics for people like him, it's terrifying as a parent. And so if we can introduce technology that will allow us to not have to have that horrible conversation experience in our lives, that's profoundly important. Now, the arguments that our opponents have made are fundamentally that this is hard, that it is hard to build the technology, that it's going to be hard to build a business around this, that it's going to be hard to do it right. Well, I would quote John F. Kennedy, that we built the self-driving technology not because it is easy, but because it is hard. Because the challenge is one we are willing to accept and we're unwilling to postpone. All hail the driverless car. Thank you, Chris Urmson. And our final speaker will be speaking against the resolution, data journalist and author, Meredith Broussard. I've heard the same statistic about safety repeated over and over again. 
John Krafzik's LinkedIn page, he had the statistic 95% of traffic accidents are caused by humans and driverless cars are going to reduce this. And then I saw the same statistic repeated on a National Highway Transportation Safety Administration page. And I looked at who had made that statistic. It was a statistic that was created by a government contractor. And that contractor was a subsidiary of an organization that makes unmanned drones for military use. And this was making the argument for driverless cars. So we have a government contractor who stands to profit dramatically from the introduction of autonomous vehicles, who is concocting the justification that the government is using for implementing self-driving cars. I think we need to look closely at who is telling us that this is making a safer world, and I think we need to look at what kind of profits are they going to reap from us believing this. Race is a factor in image recognition. Our image recognition systems have a lot of the same blind spots that humans do, because humans embed their own biases in the technology. And so we have things like soap dispensers that don't work for people with darker skin. And this scales up. It scales into facial recognition systems, which are better at recognizing men with light skin. They're better at recognizing men than they are at recognizing women. They're better at recognizing people with light skin than they are at recognizing people with darker skin. Who is going to get hit by self-driving cars? And who is going to suffer as a consequence of having these things on the road? Thank you, Meredith Broussard. And that concludes round three of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I now have the final results. Let's look at the first vote. In the first vote, on the resolution, all hail the driverless car, 67% agreed with the resolution, 18% were against it, and 15% were undecided. In the second vote, the team arguing for the resolution, their first vote again was 67%. Their second vote was 88%. They pulled up 21 percentage points, which is the number to beat. Wow. The team wow. against the resolution, their first vote was 18%. Their second vote was 10%. They lost 8 percentage points. That means the team arguing for the resolution, all hail the driverless car, our winners. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was recorded live in New York City. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. Leah Mathau is chief content officer. Amy Kraft is director of operations and production. Shay O'Mara is manager of editorial operations. Aaron Dalton and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. And I'm your host. From Intelligence Squared U.S. and me, John Donvan, thanks to all of you. <laughs>